Good morning, good morning, welcome, and happy Sunday. I am so excited to be welcoming you to Weightless and Mind, Body, and Spirit, hosted by yours truly, Dr. Carol Penn. This exciting 10-part series in Season 8 is presented by Penn Global Visions and Penn Global Medical and my team of super friends as we explore the worlds of weight loss, weight loss maintenance, aging in reverse, heart health, and optimizing health and well-being in mind, body, and spirit. Today's episode of Weightless and Mind, Body, and Spirit explores the very important concept and topic of when there is a thorn in the side of the community, how reparations could heal the racial divide. So let's listen to our wonderful theme music and get ready to get the party started. Weightless, weightless. No matter what people say, you're full of greatness. greatness. Time you opened up your eyes, you were courageous. If only they could see you going through your paces It's amazing Weightless No matter what people say You're full of greatness Time you open up your eyes You work courageous If only they could see you going through your paces It's amazing Time you opened up your eyes, you were courageous If only they could see you going through your paces It's amazing Well, welcome back and we are looking forward to a welcome from our sponsor Weightless and Mind, Body, and Spirit is brought to you by Penn Global Visions and Penn Global Medical. Thank you for joining us on this last episode of Season 8, and we invite you to listen to the podcast of all of our shows at Anchor.com. Now let's return to our host, Dr. Carol Penn, with her super friend guest. Oh, well, thank you so much. However, I just want to take the mindful pause this morning. This is Memorial Day weekend, and we honor all of those men and women who have served and have fought to preserve our rights and our freedoms. Thank you for your service. And we also pause this morning to acknowledge what is occurring across this nation today, across this globe today, those that are involved in war, in the Ukraine, the almost countless mass murders that have occurred. Of course, the big ones that are getting our attention, Buffalo and Uvalde, we are with you. We hear you, we see you, we are bearing witness to this collectively, but you know here, 
on weightless and mind, body, and spirit, we do our best to evolve our consciousness, to be inclusive, and to remember. And as always, we begin this effort today to acknowledge what has been buried by honoring the truth. Please take a moment to consider the many legacies of violence, displacement, migration, and settlement that bring us here today. And please join us in uncovering these truths, for this is our ongoing work, is it not? All right, everyone, welcome. And we have so many of you joining us and joining us for the first time today. And we are looking forward to our production team reaching out and letting us be able to see who you are and give a shout out. So we want you to remain active in that chat today. Good morning and welcome, 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 Sojourner. We know who you are. Good morning and welcome, Kenny. And again, thank you for that incredible theme music. So wonderful. We Oh, good morning and welcome, Shirley. We have Red Bank, New Jersey in the house. We have good morning and welcome, Linda. Hashtag Meditation Nation. So many of you tuning in and joining. Good morning and welcome, Dina, my colleague from the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. And yes, we have a lot of work to do. Good morning and welcome, Molly. So I'm going to ask everyone. Oh, they're, they're just all coming on this morning. And it's exciting to see you all here and to welcome you all here this morning. So as always, I'm going to bring our incredible guest on today while I share her accolades, her bio, as you get to know, Andrea McChristian Esquire. So let's see, here she is, here she is. So you can see her beautiful smiling face. And I want you to listen up as we learn about the amazing work that she's doing and who she is. Andrea McChristian is the Law and Policy Director at the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice. In this capacity, she leads the implementation of the strategic vision and direction of the Law and Policy Program. Andrea oversees the programmatic function of the Institute's three pillars of social justice, democracy and justice, economic justice and criminal justice reform. Prior to becoming law and policy director, Andrea served as the director of the Criminal Justice Reform Initiative and was the primary author of Bring Our Children Home, Ain't I a Child, which forms the basis of the 150 Years is Enough campaign. Oh, we're going to be learning about all of this today. Andrea's writing on juvenile justice and racial justice has been published in the Star-Ledger, the Juvenile Justice Information Exchange, and the New Jersey Spotlight. Before joining the Institute, Andrea served as a litigation associate at the New York office of Fried. Frank, Harris, Shriver, and Jacobson. During her time as it fried Frank or freed Frank, Andrea worked on complex commercial litigation and pro bono cases. Andrea is a 2008 graduate of Yale University, graduating with distinction in the major of political science. 
At Yale, Andrea served as co-president of the Yale NAACP, co-reactivating the chapter after a years-long absence from campus. After graduation, Andrea joined Teach for America, teaching Head Start for two years in the Las Vegas Valley. Andrea then attended Columbia Law School, where she participated in the challenging the consequences of mass, incarcerate, mass incarceration clinic, interned in Auckland, New Zealand, as part of the law school's human rights internship program, and interned at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. After graduating from Columbia Law School in 2013 as a Harlan Fisk Stone Scholar, Andrea clerked for Chief Judge Patrice B. Tucker of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Welcome and good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Dr. Penn. I'm so glad to be here and have this wonderful conversation with you. Absolutely. We're excited to get started for sure. There is so much that we can talk about. But what I want to put right in at the top is that I think your being here today is a harbinger of hope. Because when things get tough for me, when things seem bleak and hopeless and upsetting, I always want to know what is it that I can do to improve things, even if it's just moving the needle a little, little bit. And we're certainly gonna have some call to actions today where our wonderful audience that's here participating live, as well as those who watch during the week will be able to, you know, just ignite their allyship, their accompliceship, and their activism all in one fell swoop. And there's one topic that while we were prepping for the show that just kept coming up as an underlying theme. And if you will, I'd like to start there. And I'll open with this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and inhumane. So that is something that seems to be undergirding a lot of what we're talking about today, because as those of us who live in marginalized communities or who have been minoritized, certainly those of us living in black and brown bodies or any bodies that have been othered, feel the impact of this in our daily walk of life. And I understand that New Jersey has some legislation that is actually looking at these issues. So can we take a dive in and start there? I'm a doctor. So, you know, the health thing always comes to my mind immediately. Sure, Dr. Penn. So something to your point, New Jersey is recognizing at the state level, as we are recognizing at the national level, that racism is really a public health crisis, where this is something where we as Black people go out into the world and are already subject to a number of racial disparities that we take home with us. We take it into our homes, we take it into our communities, we take it into our families, and that's something that is helping to contribute to New Jersey having some of the most shameful racial disparities in the entire nation, which I hope we'll talk about in a little bit. And so there is legislation, to your point right now, 
in New Jersey, a resolution. Again, to your point, we're about action at the Institute. So I'd like to give the bill numbers. The bill numbers are AR-53 and SR-11. Those are identical bill numbers in the Assembly and the Senate that would declare racism a public health crisis in the state. Because we know that one, even moving further than that, COVID-19, we're, we're still in the thick of it. We see that cases are rising once again. And we know that Black people, both within New Jersey and at the national level, are more likely to be essential front, essential workers at the front lines, are more likely to live in crowded, substandard housing, which makes it hard to socially distance, are more likely to be in lower paying jobs where they aren't able to get the same benefits as their white counterparts in the suburbs to be safe during this pandemic. And so already when black people from the founding of our nation were subject to racial disparities that have compounded and racism in itself, we saw that COVID-19 has exacerbated that racism, exposing the cracks of structural racism that were already inherent within our society since the foundation of our country. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for those bills. And I like everyone, get out your notepads and get out your pens and write these down. So even if you aren't watching from the state of New Jersey, you live elsewhere, you can pick up the phone, you can email and find out if there are comparable measures occurring in your state. And if they aren't, you can ask why not. Remember in politics, it seems that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So if you aren't participating in the conversation, then they're listening to those who are. So if you want to participate in this conversation, that's a little thing that you could do. It's a small thing, potentially with a large impact. And one of the ways, again, just to frame it, to point it out. So let's just look at life expectancy. Life expectancy for a white male in this country is 78.8 years for an African-American man, it's 71.9 years. And this has actually declined from 2011 when it was 72.2 years. And this is when we control for education, for economics. So why is that? And what is that about? Is that racism can kill you and is killing you. We could go on and on and on. And I would just like to share with our audience, there's a great book called Black Fatigue by Mary Frances Winters. And the subtitle is How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit. And you could read about some of these statistics that she includes and documents up through like 2017, 2018, because this was a recently published books. So, and yes, I think there was a question in there about the Senate, the comparable bill in the Senate. There was another number that you shared. Yes. It's SR 11 in the Senate and AR 53 in the assembly side. Okay. Very good. So those are the numbers you need to know in New Jersey. And if you aren't in New Jersey, you need to be in touch with your state legislature and find out what they are, and if not, why not? All right, so let's go into it. One of the policies that we were talking about in preparation for the show is around housing. 
and around some of those discriminatory practices. And I know these are some of the big projects that you're working on. So let's jump on into that. Sure. So New Jersey is really a tale of two New Jerseys, where in one New Jersey, white communities are able to benefit from all the prosperity in the state, where we have one of the highest median net wealths for white families in the nation of $322,500. So that's the median net wealth for New Jersey white families. Again, $322,500, one of the highest in the nation. By comparison, Black communities are not able to experience that same prosperity where the median net wealth for a Black family in New Jersey is $17,700 by comparison. So again, 322,500 white families, 17,700 Black families. So that's a 300, over $300,000 racial wealth gap here in the state. But how did we get here? One of the largest drivers of our racial wealth gap is home ownership, where in New Jersey, Black households, only about 30% of them are homeowners compared to about 70% of white households. Mm. But this is not a homeownership divide created in a vacuum. We have to really look at the founding of the colony. When English settlers were given 150 acres of land for coming to the colony of New Jersey and an additional 150 acres for every enslaved person they brought with them into the colony. We have to look at an early form of sharecropping that took place here in the state called cottaging. We have to look at how New Jersey opposed the Emancipation Proclamation and the Reconstruction Amendments. We have to look at how redlining and racially restrictive covenants took hold in New Jersey, as well as how returning servicemen from World War II, Black servicemen, were denied the benefits wholesale of the GI Bill, which we know was an expansive program in our nation that led to the development of a strong middle class. And we have to look at predatory lending practices, which have led New Jersey to consistently having one of the highest foreclosure rates in the nation. And so we have to look at this history of divestment of property from our Black communities while also incentivizing and essentially giving property to our white communities generationally that's led to this racial wealth gap and this home ownership divide by race today. But importantly, a factor is that Black families are less likely to own homes, but once they have homes, they're also less likely to be able to extract wealth from those homes. And a big component of that is racially discriminatory appraisals, where I'm sure you've seen all the news about it lately um, that we've heard where Black families, for example, I believe there was a New York Times piece, were talking about removing all of the images and photos from their homes so that they could get a fair appraisal rate. This is something that has been so much of an issue in terms of the racial wealth gap that the Biden administration actually announced a task force to look into racially discriminatory appraisals and to come up with solutions for how to address it. And they released that task force report a few months ago. This is something in New Jersey we've heard anecdotally is a major issue, um, but unfortunately there's no database or accountability tool to track how widespread this is and to make sure that appraisers stop this shameful practice. And so we're excited to support a bill, um, S777, which would prevent racially discriminatory appraisals as actually going to um, the New Jersey Senate. 
this Thursday in committee at 10 a.m. And so something that anyone who is interested in supporting this bill, which would, with the amendments that we propose, um, make sure that there's a database created to prevent this practice, to make sure that people who are selling their homes are armed with information about how to report um, if they feel a racially discriminatory appraisal has happened. But you can go to our website, njisj.org, and our action center to go and tweet email and call your local legislators to pass this important bill now, which we think is an important critical piece of home equity development, which will lead to wealth accumulation and generation in our Black communities in New Jersey. And I see we need to drop one of those W's in there. But yes, that's go to the website of the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice. So I just want to recap. You said so much there, starting with I had never heard of this term cottaging. And you said it was a form of sharecropping. Now, I know with sharecropping, you know, again, this came about in the Reconstruction era, and you know, Black and white families were impacted by sharecropping, although it, again, disproportionately affected Black families. I know my mom's side of the families, they ended up sharecropping their own land. So again, losing any opportunity to derive wealth from the land. But tell me a little bit about cottaging. How was it similar and how was it different? And the fact that it happened here in New Jersey, kind of sowing the seeds for this horrible, horrendous wealth gap that we have. Sure. I mean, it was exactly that, Dr. Penn. It was after the end of slavery, many people, many now freed Black people weren't able to get, you know, jobs. They weren't able to benefit their families. And so their former, um, the former masters of their plantations were offering them um, the opportunity to still continue to work the land in an early form of sharecropping called cottaging. And what we found is that this took hold most strongly in Monmouth County, um, this early form. And so Obviously, if you are working the land where you once were enslaved, you aren't able to then, to your point, get property, gain wealth, um, be able to be independent. So it was essentially a continued form of enslavement after the end of slavery itself legally. And you also had a powerful call to action. People are asking me every day, I feel hopeless. I feel helpless. I'm overwhelmed. What can I do? Is there anything I can do? So what was that call to action? What's happening this Thursday? Let's get that together because someone out there today that's listening right now might say, you know, that's what I can do. And you're saying that something can make a difference. Sure. So this Thursday at 10 a.m. in the Trenton State House and Senate Committee, S777, the Fair Appraisals Bill, is going to go to a committee hearing. I'll be testifying. Um, we are working with partners to make sure the people come out to testify to pass this bill out of committee, which would then mean it would go to the House floor. Um, something that we are actually encouraging is if you feel that you were subject to a racially discriminatory appraisal, we're trying to gather the stories because, as I mentioned, a big pushback with this bill specifically is that there is no quantifiable data, like no percentages, but it's a circular argument because this bill doesn't exist. There's no way to gather that data. So if you have an impacted story, we'd love to hear from you at the Institute. My email is amacristian 
at njisj.org. Um, you can just email um, the general contact list on our website as well. But we'd love to gather your story so that we can show New Jersey this is an issue here. People are impacted and we need this bill to pass to import accountability into the appraisals process. Very, very important. And so Andrea is inviting you to email her. And so I hope that so a McChristian at NJ. ISJ. ISJ.org. So we're going to drop that so people can capture your email address. I'm certainly going to be sharing it with my mailing list this Thursday. And can we show up in Trenton if we're in the town, in the state, in the area? The only thing is because typically you would have been able to, but because of COVID protocols, um, to my knowledge, it's still limited to people who are going to be testifying. Okay. All right. So we have to keep our eye on that as, as that is in fact beginning to change, but these things are important. I, my family was the first African-American family to purchase property on the East side of Red Bank. Uh, they were greeted. The foundation of the home was, was had a, we had a cross burning here. So racialized terror to, you know, discourage my grandfather from continuing with what he wanted to do. He did it anyway. And here we are several, you know, four generations into being in Red Bank. We live on a corner where no African-American family has ever lived on that street. Now, you know, how is that? It's a, you know, it's a lovely street, but, you know, no, you know, and that that was cultivated. That was on purpose to keep it to this day as it is. And recently, friends just down the street, which is in a neighboring town, real estate told them, take all the pictures down. You don't want people to know that a African-American family owned this house. So this is 2022. This is not yesterday. This is alive and well and going on today. And people need to be aware of it. I, I'm witnessing it on a daily basis. I'm living it on a daily basis. This is where I grew up and hasn't changed since when I grew up. So Let's move on. The hour is going so quickly, but something else that is near and dear to your heart, and that is youth justice, the whole history of youth incarceration in the state of New Jersey. What's going on there and how can people get involved there? Sure. And so to frame the issue, I want to talk about the Bordentown School. So the Bordentown School was a state-run elite boarding school that New Jersey operated for over 50 years. It was created in the late 1800s by the formerly enslaved Reverend Walter Rice and educated scores of New Jersey's Black students on 400 acres in Bordentown, New Jersey. The, this was called the Tuskegee of the North after Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute and combined vocational training along with college preparedness and was visited by Albert Einstein, Eleanor Roosevelt, Paul Robeson, and many other luminaries. After the Bordentown School attempted to integrate after the end of school segregation, but was unsuccessful in doing so, the school closed. And now what sits on the land that was once home to the Tuskegee of the North, one of the most elite prep schools for black students in the nation, 
Hayes, New Jersey's only girls youth prison. And across the street sits JMSF, the state's most youth prison for boys. We have literally become the school to prison pipeline realized here in New Jersey. And I want to set that. I always like to tell the Portentown school story because I think it sets a frame of the investment that New Jersey is making in its black young people. Right now, we have the worst black to white youth incarceration disparity rate in the nation with the black youth about 17 times more likely to be incarcerated than their white counterpart, even though research shows that for most offenses, black and white youth are committing them at similar rates. In addition, we're incarcerating these mostly black youth in largely empty failed youth prisons. We are spending over $600,000 to incarcerate each young person in our state's youth prisons. And with only around 100 young people locked up across the whole state, our youth prisons are 75% empty. But in addition, they aren't rehabilitated. About 20% of young people who are released from these facilities end up right back there within three years. And so in order to see this as a racial justice moment that our nation needs to, our nation and our state needs to look at closing failed youth prisons, prioritizing money in the communities most impacted by youth incarceration so our young people never end up in the system at all and transforming what it looks like if our young people do need to be out of home for public safety reasons. The Institute joined with partners to launch the 150 Years is Enough campaign launched on the 150th anniversary of the opening of Jamesburg, which is the state's largest youth prison for boys. And we had great success, where only about six months later, former Governor Christie announced the closure of two youth prisons, but unfortunately also the construction of three smaller ones. Now, again, we think this isn't a time for a construction project. We know that, you know, a big piece of closing our state's youth prisons is going to be making sure that there's a workers' transition plan because about 500 workers are employed in these largely empty facilities. But we know that we can't uphold a broken system that hurts our Black kids just for jobs. And so what we've done at the Institute is we have partnered with other members on this campaign to dissent from a recent report that was created by a state-created task force that said, we're just going to move forward with this as a construction project. We're not going to take the moment to invest in our communities. We're not going to take the moment to set a closure timeline. We're not going to take a moment to see what investments are being currently wasted that we can reappropriate and reallocate towards our kids. And so what everyone can do is go to our website and read our dissenting statement to this governor created task force where we say that we need three things simply right now in this moment of youth justice transformation, two years after a racial reckoning that really exposed the structural racism in our foundation. Three things. One, we need to set a closure timeline for our state's youth prisons. The announcement was made in 2018. It's now 2022. All our youth prisons are still open. As our kids stay languishing, in these faraway facilities removed from their communities and loved ones. We can't wait one more day to bring them home and bring them into safer and more rehabilitative out-of-home placements. Number two, we need to invest $100 million into the communities most impacted by youth incarceration. Our state is spending about $50 million each year to incarcerate 100 kids. Why can't we invest $100 million into front-end community programs that will help communities all across the state in prevention, intervention, diversion, restorative justice, mental health practices to keep our young people who are at risk of entering the system 
in their communities. And we picked $100 million specifically because that is the amount that Governor Murphy previously dedicated to tackling the opioid epidemic, which we know affects certain communities. And number three, we want a full transformation of our state's youth facilities. Let's look at the youth prisons we already have. We don't need to construct three smaller ones. We need to close all youth prisons and look at best practices, which look to renovating and repurposing community-based facilities like old schools, old churches, making them secure, but keeping them close to their families and loved ones. So we don't have to worry about reentry because these young people were still integrated into the community, even when they were placed somewhere else for secure care. And so those are three things we're asking. You can go to our website, njisj.org, to sign on to our dissenting statement, because we need to show force to the state to say, these are our kids, these are our communities, and we want a better investment for them than just another construction project of youth prisons. Okay, New Jerseyites, there you have it. There you have it. There is a something that you can do that you could do right now. You could do immediately after this show, like no excuses and sign that dissenting statement. Because as we're hearing from Andrea, these things make a difference. This then becomes the social proof that people care. And this you could do regardless of political association, regardless of whatever color body is that you're living in. But this is you could do as a human being that says, yeah, 150 years is enough. This is not right. This is not right. So let me ask you this. What kinds of uh, criminal offenses seem to be predominating? Like, why are these kids being picked up, removed from their homes and being sent to prison? It really runs the gamut, Dr. Penn. Some young people are in there for lower level offenses, but many are in there for serious offenses. And something that we are arguing for is that we've seen that national best practices show that you can have secure care facilities in the community for young people who have committed more serious offenses and they're more rehabilitative. Because just imagine if a young person commits a very serious harm and they're sent to a faraway youth prison that's hard for their families to reach them. It's hard for community-based services to wrap around them. If they get a job out there, it's not going to translate when they get back to the community. Versus if a young person has committed a serious offense, but they're kept in a secure care place in their community, they can still be roped into their school. They can still be connected to their family. They can still be connected to community services. They can start the process of getting a job so that when they get released, they're already there. And so even we don't focus on the offenses because we know that no matter what the offense is, we have seen the research has shown that community-based programs and placements are better and more rehabilitative for our young people. And if we really care, if we really want to help our young people, knowing that the brain science shows that their brains are constantly rewiring through age 25 and that they're eventually going to age out of this kind of behavior, we should be giving them every benefit and resource to wrap around and rehabilitate so that they can go back and be great members of their communities. No, absolutely. And that, to your point, those frontal lobes are still developing. They're in their developmental stages until age 25. And so it is very important. And what kinds of programs um, really do prove the point that 
these kids can be rehabilitated. And when they are in those rehabilitative programs, um, what are some of the activities that should be a part of these programs? Because I know there's an educator out there. There are people out there that are listening right now that are wondering these same questions. And who knows, they might be the person to come up with a curriculum, to come up with something that can offer our youth this and change the narrative. So something that we're very excited about, actually, is a program that people can get involved with right now. So with our campaign, we were moving full speed ahead and then COVID happened, where we had to be responsive to our young people far away in these prisons being exposed to COVID disproportionately. Because at one point, we had the one of the highest adult death rates in the nation in our prisons. And while we didn't have the youth numbers, obviously we know that was also a major issue there. And so we sprung into action for a number of kind of rapid response COVID items. So through our advocacy, we became the first state in the nation to test all of us incarcerated youth for COVID-19. Second, we were able to partner with adult advocates to get about a hundred young, over a hundred young people released from our state's youth facilities that had less than a year left on their sentence, who were going to be, you know, vulnerable, disproportionately vulnerable to the pandemic. But the third thing we did is we said, hey, these young people are returning home. We need to start building a community-based system of care so that from being home in community-based programs all the way to secure care facilities, you're able to get these programs and services. So something that we advocated for and now is law is the development, the appropriation of $8.4 million for the development of restorative justice hubs, restorative justice centers in Patterson, Camden, Trenton, and Newark. And so what these hubs will do, they work with the normal County Youth Services Commission's process, which is the body that doles out money for those intervention prevention diversion programs for young people, is that providers, service providers can loop together or they can do it on their own to respond to the RFP to develop a restorative justice hub. And they can be really bold with how they want this to look. That can be mental health services, that can be counseling, that can be educational services. Anything that will support these young people who are both returning home from these facilities and young people who are at risk of going into the youth justice system. So you can go to the JJC's website, jjc.org. That's the New Jersey Juvenile Justice Commission, who is in charge of um, running this program. I believe it is still um, about to be at the process where the RFPs are going to be going out, but you can go to the JJC's website. You can email them, ask where they are in the process. Again, those four pilot cities for this restorative justice pilot program are Patterson, Camden, Trenton, and Newark. So if you're in one of those cities, you work in one of those cities with a program that you think would be a great addition to this, please go to jjc.org and learn about the restorative and transformative justice for communities pilot program. Oh, thank you for that. You are giving us so much to do opportunities. And if, and if a person is just called to pick any one thing any one thing, it will make a difference. So I don't want to hear I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. Here's your what to do's. Here's an opportunity. And if you're not in this state, you want to ask about what's going on comparable in your state. And if not, 
Why not? If you don't say anything, for sure it won't happen. We are enjoying this conversation with you so much, Andrea, but it's time to have a little break from our sponsor. So we're going to take a breath and we're going to welcome our sponsor back on in. See you on the other side. Such a fabulous show. Thank you both. Weightless of Mind, Body, and Spirit is brought to you by Penn Global Visions and Penn Global Medical. We'd like to thank Testito for supporting this program and thank you for joining us today. We invite you to listen to the podcasts of all eight seasons of our shows at anchor.com. We'll be returning to live broadcast on June 19th with episode one of season nine. Thank you again, and let's return to Dr. Carol and her super friend guest, Andrea McChristian. All right, so here we are. We're going to continue on. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful day here in New Jersey, and my soul is singing because I'm even seeing reflected in the comments. I don't live in New Jersey, but I know what to do now. And so, yes, 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 yes. Thank you, Rebecca. This is so important that people get an idea of what to do. And we knew just who to come to, to stimulate this conversation. So last but not least, let's talk about reparations and Tell us what it is, what's happening here in New Jersey. Uh, the first time I heard you speak about uh, reparations, and then the second time I heard you speak about reparations, I just knew I had to have you on this show to talk about this very important, important topic. Because I do believe that reparations, when they're done well, could really be a path to healing the racial divide, not increasing it, but to healing it. Because I do believe that good people, kind people, focused people, evolving people want good things to happen for human beings. And that's what we're talking about here. So please take us into the reparations story and the reparations journey. Sure. So I think what's important is that we see in the present day, New Jersey's home as I mentioned before, to some of the worst racial disparities in the country. So we have the worst black to white infant mortality rate in the nation, the biggest disparity, over three to one. We have the highest, um, or we have the worst black to white incarceration disparity rates in both our youth and adult populations. We have the six most segregated schools for our black students. We have one of the highest racial wealth gaps in the state. And so at every single measure, New Jersey has some of the highest racial disparities. Well, again, sometimes it's, that's mind blowing to people because they think New Jersey, this progressive bastion sitting on a hill, but that is not the experience being shared by all New Jerseyans and it's largely stratified along race. But something that frust frustrates me often is that people look at this and say, okay, how can we solve these solutions today? How do we move forward as today is a starting point? But you can't understand how we got to these disparities without looking to our history. I already mentioned to you about the land and property uh, disparate nature that occurred at the founding of the colony. But New Jersey was actually known as the slave state of the North. 
By 1830, over two thirds of all slaves, enslaved people, excuse me, in the North were held in New Jersey. As I mentioned, we opposed the Emancipation Proclamation. We opposed the Reconstruction Amendments. We had some of the strictest Black codes, which were racially restrictive codes um, that placed limits on Black people in the Northeast. And so we're seeing that from slavery through its lasting legacy, I mentioned foreclosures, redlining, racially restrictive covenants, all these different practices, we know that there's a history that has led to white people being given numerous benefits in our state, in our nation, while this was also stripped away by Black people. This wasn't something that just happened in the South. It wasn't some faraway idea. It happened here in New Jersey. And so what do we need to do? We need to account for that history. We can't understand how we have one of the largest racial wealth gaps in the nation without understanding that history of property divestment. We can't understand how we are such a segregated um, state in terms of school and otherwise without understanding, for example, the Newark Rebellion and how that prompted white flight into the suburbs, leaving the city. We can't understand um, these health disparities that we mentioned without understanding how Black people from in our nation and our state were not provided equal health care at the rates of our white counterparts. And so something that we have been advocating for at the Institute is a task force, which many would say is really low-hanging fruit. When we want just something to get done, it's a task force. But the resistance we've seen to this shows that we're on the right path because we know that when there is resistance to an idea, it's usually the right idea. So something that we are advocating for is the, for New Jersey to create a statewide reparations task force that would address this history of slavery, its legacy on a number of fronts that I mentioned, health, education, mass incarceration, democracy, with again, New Jersey first restricting the right to vote in its constitution in 1844, the same year that it said that people with criminal convictions could not vote, which we knew was a racially targeted practice. And so looking at all of these various factors, these various issue areas, uncovering this history, having public hearings, talking to impacted people, just like we're seeing with the Tulsa massacre, accounting with the people who are unfortunately now over a hundred years old, who are the victims of that. And so understanding all these different histories and how we can develop today policies and practices to repair the harm. Many a time, the idea of reparations is boiled down to just a check. You want to hand Black people a check. Financial payment is, yes, a part of this, but it's only a part. We need to look at practices like student loan cancellation, which we know disproportionately impacts Black women, is a form of reparation. Closing our youth prisons and reinvesting into communities is a form of reparations. Making sure that our young people are not going to segregated schools is a form of reparations. Ending health disparities, racism as a public health crisis and coming with it, all the resources that that would bring is a form of reparations. And so we need to be bold and expansive. We've had a tough few weeks. We've had the two-year anniversary of the tragic murder of George Floyd. We had the killing of our young students and teachers in Texas. We're still reckoning with what we saw in Buffalo, the hate crime we saw there. And many a time when these acts happen, we hear platitudes. We hear we give hopes and prayers. That's all nice, but we need investment in our Black communities. We need resources. We need our Black young people to have access to quality food, 
to green spaces, to superb education, to quality and safe housing, to opportunities, to resources and community-based public safety rather than over-policing. These are all reparations that are the reality of our Black people today that have come from a history of structural racism. And so our statewide reparations task force, again, A938, S386 would unpack this history and create policies that would repair the harm. And we hope that you'll join with us. We have one on our website. We have another action alert so that you can text, email, call your local legislator to pass the statewide reparations task force. We're also rallying because we know that there is power in the people. And so on Juneteenth, because the state has now declared Juneteenth the state holiday, Juneteenth this year is June 17th, a Friday. We are partnering with the People's Organization for Progress, a legacy organization here in the city of Newark that has held reparations rallies for decades to have our Juneteenth March and Rally for Reparations, to call for the statewide reparations task force, justice, to call for the state to close our youth prisons, and democracy for the state to pass same-day voter registration. So we hope that you'll join with us at noon on June 17th at the Lincoln Memorial in downtown Newark. We want to come in force to show the state that we're tired of platitudes. We're tired of words. We're tired of low-hanging fruit bills that don't invest in our communities. We need reparations today. Thank you so much. That was extremely powerful. And again, several calls to action. So there is actually if you want to go up, if you want to show up, if you want to be there with your body, show up on the state holiday is what's then actually that's declared all across the United States, Friday, June 17th at noon. That's the March. Then the rally begins at 1.30 because again, it's that squeaky wheel, isn't it? When you show up in numbers, when you're making noise, you know, that, you know, that's often been an excuse. Well, we're not going to do this. or We're not going to pay attention. Doesn't seem like black people are interested. Doesn't seem like white people are interested. So no, if you make a noise, if you show up, they can actually count the number of people. That, then they go, oh, yeah, we better listen to this. We better pay attention to this. Again, going to the website and indicating there on the website. So there's a lot of things. You could spend a good 10, 15 minutes on that website, you know, signing your name, declaring things, finding out what's going on. That's an action that we all can take today. And I'm just going to ask, if you're going to go to that website today, right after this show goes off the air, Go ahead and drop that in the chat. I'm going to make it a point to go and look on that website. Where can I put my name? Where can I indicate my interest? Where can I be counted to say that I care? In my home state, New Jersey is my home. I'm a native of New Jersey. I'm a fourth generation Red Banker. And I want to be counted. I want to be in the number. How do you, and I often ask people, how is it that you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered as a person who did something? Or did you want to be, you know, a person remembered as those who really did nothing? Again, someone, uh, one of the coaches, Steve Kerr, this week said in relation to 
the tragedy at Uvalde. I am sick and tired of the moments of silence. They're nice, they're necessary, they're whatever. And when nothing happens as a result of it, when we still keep going back to the same place again and again, and I've even heard, mm, isn't that the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and then yet expecting a different outcome. So the people that are watching here live to be, let us not be in that number. Let us be in the number that said, you know what? Whatever the outcome is, they showed up, they tried, they made their voices known. They didn't remain silent in the face of the horrific. They did not remain complacent and hide behind any hint of privilege or it's too big, it's too much, it's too overwhelming. But they did, they showed up. They put a little skin in the game and that's my call to action to all of you today. And we are going to be doing this particular show as a rebroadcast during our ninth season so that people can hear this again. So important, so important that it's not just Juneteenth, but it's August 10th and it's September 10th and it's October 10th that there's ongoing action and ongoing opportunity to be the change that we want to see in the world. So Andrea, one more time, how can people get in touch with you? What is going on in that website? Let's sum it up because I think, you know, right now, right today can be the beginning of those changes and anchoring them because you all are doing the work and thank you for that. Thank you, Dr. Carroll. I really appreciate being here with you. So in this moment where so many of us feel that we don't know what to do, there's lots that you can do. One, you can go to the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice's website at njisj.org. There you'll see our action center, which will take you to a number of action alerts. I was remiss to say earlier, there is a youth justice action alert to call on the state to close our youth prisons. And they're all there in our action center. You just click on all of them if you want to tweet, email, and call your legislature. You can email me at amcchristian at njisj.org if you have any questions. Also, if you want to share your story about you believe that you were subject or someone you know was subject to a discriminatory appraisal, we'd love to have you come testify on Thursday because as I mentioned, we've been told that there isn't enough data and we know that there is just because it's not quantifiable and that's why we need this bill. We encourage you also to come out to our Juneteenth rally, June 17th, noon, Lincoln Memorial in downtown Newark to make sure that your voice is heard on these issues and more because I know it's tiring. We're all exhausted. It's an exhausting process, but power expects us to be exhausted. Power wants us to be exhausted so that can continue the way it is. So you got to rest. We got to be mindful. We got to be well and take care of ourselves because we need to be fortified for this fight. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I would I would love to come up and support you and your team with some mild mindfulness. You know, that's my jam. You know, it's like we're going to change the world one breath, one meditation at a time. And we do get weary. The human body does get tired. And how is it that we can rest for rest sake? 
to be restored, to be renewed, have that clear mind, and then make a better choice, have a higher thought, evolve the consciousness of humanity. So that's a gift that I would love to offer to you personally, as well as to anybody on your team that you feel that might need it. So restoration and rest for the soldiers in the field. So listen, you all, we're going to go ahead. We're going to get out of here. I pledge I'll support anybody out there. So what are the numbers for the reparation studies bills? Yes, Molly, we want to know. Let's hear those numbers once yes. more. The bills are A938S386. They are also listed on the flyer as well as on the Institute's website. We have a 2021 through 2022 action agenda to make Black Lives really matter in New Jersey. And that has all our policy priorities, including all the bill numbers as well. Wonderful. So you can go to the website and see it all, right? So we have people that are saying thank you. And I personally want to thank you. This isn't the end. This is the beginning. I hope that we will be together on many more platforms to continue to bring this word, to keep bringing this opportunity for people who know they want to do the right thing and for people who want to make change. So this is wonderful. Thank you so much. Listen, you all do Weightless and mind, body, and spirit, a favor, follow us on Anchor, where we are a podcast. Share this with your community. Share this with your sphere of influence so that the word can get out. Let's meet there up on the hill in Newark on Juneteenth, and let's make those changes. So, so long for now and see you back here on Sunday, June 19th, when we kick off season nine. So excited, so excited. Thank you so much. And we're going to ask Kenny to go ahead and play us out. Weightless, weightless. No matter what people say, you're full of greatness. Time you opened up your eyes, you were courageous. If only they could see you going through your paces. It's amazing. Weightless.